members of our Patreon heard this episode first. You can be a patron too if you hit the link in our show notes or visit patreon.com slash the Murder Diaries pod. Head over there for more Murder Diaries content. Welcome back to another episode of the Murder Diaries. I'm Paige. And I'm Natalie. The case we're going to talk about today knocked a safe San Francisco suburb to its knees. As a friend of the victim put it, it broke the shell of safety. Jenny Lynn was 14 years old in May 1994 when her parents weren't able to reach her at home, where she was supposed to be after school. As the workday came to an end, her father arrived home, only to find a strange scene. The TV was on, but the house was empty. Calling for his youngest daughter, he heads up the stairs, and it quickly set in something was wrong when he noticed the primary bedroom's bathroom door was closed. Behind that door, he found Jenny murdered. This is her story. Used to think it's in my head, but I'm walking with the dead. John Len was getting ready to wrap up his Friday and return home from work on May 27th, 1994. That's when he gave his youngest daughter, Jenny, a call at home around 5.30, right before he left the office. The family was going to be discussing that evening plans for Memorial Day. John was really looking forward to that because, quote, she always had the greatest ideas. To his surprise, instead of Jenny answering the phone, he reached their answering machine. Now, for the young ones or those who may have forgotten, this was a way that you could grab the messages off of your answering machine. So that's what John did. He grabbed the messages off of their machine and then he called right back. To his dismay, Jenny again didn't answer. Jenny was supposed to be at home like any other weekday after school, awaiting the return of her parents to their beautiful two-story home in the suburbs of San Francisco. It was unlike her not to answer the phone, but he thought, okay, she's busy outside with the dog and didn't hear the phone. Something. Remember, it's 1994. This is a landline, and even the cordless phones back then started to cut out if you strayed too far from the receiver with it. Her mom, Malian, had also tried calling her that day after school too, but also got no answer. Both parents were left to wonder what was going on with their youngest daughter. Jennifer Hanchi Lin, known to her family as May May, was born May 25th, 1980. Her parents, John and Malian, moved to the U.S. in 1973 from Taiwan. They moved to the U.S. to pursue master's degrees. They then got married a year later in 1974, and they had their first child, Rhoda. She was born in 1975, and Jenny, five years later, again in 1980. Eventually, the lens settled in Castro Valley. Malian describes Jenny as, quote, very loving and caring, and goes on to say that, quote, she was the best daughter that any mother could hope for. Her father, he calls Jenny a treasure and a gift. A friend of Jenny's describes her for Paula Zahn, saying that she was bigger than life, a joy to be around, and a leader, whether she knew it or not. Jenny excelled academically. She was a straight A student, which is the top mark here in the U.S. She also enjoyed a variety of extracurriculars like running track, dance, playing viola, and piano. Jenny was so talented that her dad explains she was invited to play with the string orchestra at the high school while she was still in her role as principal violist at the middle school. Her friend Hannah, who had the honor of knowing Jenny's talent, says that, quote, she was such a natural. She played with her heart and she was beautiful when she played. 
The sky was clearly the limit for Jenny, and her dream, a big one, was to attend Brown University after she graduated, which would have been only four years later in 1998. Unfortunately, it was a dream that wouldn't come true for Jenny after the events of May 27th, 1994. John arrived home first that day. His journey home from the Federal Reserve Bank in San Francisco to Castro Valley involved a ride on the BART train. BART stands for Bay Area Rapid Transit System. It's the main public transportation system in the Bay Area. It connects the suburbs to San Francisco. After the train ride, it was just a quick drive home. He arrived home around 6.45 that night. As he walked in the door, expecting to find Jenny, he instead found the house still besides the mumble of the TV that had been left on. Noticing that Jenny clearly wasn't inside on the first floor, he made his way toward the backyard. The sliding door was unlocked, so he hoped that she was out there playing with the family dog. The dog was there in the dog run, but no Jenny. Panic setting in, John made his way up the stairs calling for his daughter. Jenny? Jenny? He arrived at her empty bedroom, and that's when the fear really set in. Something was wrong. Continuing his search for Jenny, he arrived at the primary bedroom, which he shared with his wife. He noticed that the ensuite bathroom's door was closed, which wasn't normally how it was kept. As he opened it, that's when he found Jenny face down on the floor, bound with duct tape. It was clear Jenny had been murdered, and it was a sight that no parent deserves to experience. In complete and utter shock, John called 911. There was no way this wasn't his worst nightmare especially considering what had happened not long before on May 12, 1994. John was approached at the BART station one night after work. According to a timeline document in John's own words that I linked in the show notes, he describes the event as follows. At around 7 p.m. as I was coming out of the Bayfair BART station, walking towards my van, I was confronted by a dark-colored man approximately 5'8 to 5'10, 35 to 45 years old. He said to me, I have a proposition for you. I got your daughter. I immediately backed away from him and got into my vehicle. As I was starting the engine, the man was standing next to the van and signaled me to roll the window down. I ignored him and drove away. As I was leaving the BART parking lot, I thought maybe I needed to get a better look at the person. So I drove back to the parking lot, but I could not find him there. I then drove to Jenny's Viola teacher's house where I found my wife's car outside the house. I knew they were safe. I then went home and called Rhoda, my other daughter, and she was safe also. Nothing happened after this incident for the next two weeks. And when he's talking about two weeks later, of course, he's talking about this horrific day of May 27th, 1994. Going back to that day, police arrived and found a distraught Mr. Len who led them through the crime scene. It was immediately clear to law enforcement that Jenny had been murdered. She was found with stab wounds in her abdomen and her neck cut. She had been bound with duct tape and her clothing had also been cut off. Investigators, of course, spoke with John and he mentioned the May 12th encounter to them. A sketch was made of the man from May 12th, but John wasn't happy with it originally. The police never ended up releasing it either, according to the San Francisco Examiner. The Lens ended up hiring their own sketch artist and another sketch was created. I'll include that sketch in the Instagram post for this episode, but according to the San Francisco Examiner again, this man isn't necessarily a suspect, but quote, a suspect we'd like to identify. After surveying the crime scene, investigators were quick to identify that the murderer would have entered the home with the duct tape that Jenny was bound with, as well as with the murder weapon, which was a knife of some sort. Meaning he didn't just break in and use anything he found in the Lynn's home. He came prepared. 
it was extremely clear that this was very premeditated. On top of that, it was concluded that the murderer entered the home through a window, not the unlocked slider door. The window in question was a dining room window on the first floor, not far from where Jenny liked to play her piano. The glass was shattered and then the break was concealed with the curtain. Regarding the unlocked door, Malian, last to leave that day, always made sure it was locked. So it was concluded that the door was unlocked from the inside at some other point. With the glass of the window being shattered, the murderer would have been able to reach in through that break, unlock the window, open it, and climb through it. Again, it was concluded early on that this break-in happened with the end goal of Jenny being murdered. There was no sign of burglary, and more than that, the use of duct tape was described as excessive, more than what was needed to bind Jenny. This pointed towards a foul, dark thrill that the murderer would have gotten from this type of activity. The murder was thus labeled sexually motivated. Now let's talk about the evidence found at the scene. The point of entry was dusted for fingerprints along with the duct tape and the carpet in the bathroom. A shoe print was found on the deck and along the back fence line. Several other partial shoe prints were also found. It's important to note when you're talking about the Lens home that there was a sprawling, undeveloped, kind of hilly, canyony land area right behind their fence line. You could look over their backyard fence and you were looking at open land, basically. With that in mind and the shoe prints, investigators concluded that the murderer arrived and left on foot from behind the Lens home. As the investigation was underway, the Lens were left with more sorrow and grief than one could even fathom. They were extremely frightened as well. As John states, we didn't know where this bad guy was. The Alameda County Sheriff's Office was resolute in figuring out where and who this bad guy was. An autopsy was ordered and the Sheriff's Office awaited those results. As they did, they began to create a timeline of Jenny's last day. At 7.45, Jenny was dropped off at Canyon Middle School by her father, John. It was a regular school day and she would have gotten out of school around 2.20 p.m. Then, Jenny would have gotten on the bus. She would have taken her normal bus ride home, and once she got off the bus, it was a short walk from the bus stop to when she would arrive at her door, which they're estimating was around 3 p.m. on this day. From about 4.45 to 5.20, 5.25, Jenny spoke with two friends on the phone, one with whom she played a duet on the piano with. Both girls propped their landline cordless phones up on the piano's music sheet stands, put their phones on speakers, and they could hear each other as they played. At 5.30, John calls home, no answer. And well, we know what happened after that. And considering his timeline, it's easy to see why investigators estimated that the attack took place after she hung up the phone at 5.20, 5.25, but before her dad called at 5.30. However, a neighbor gave information that complicated this theory. When the neighbors were canvassed for any leads, one reported that they heard the sound of glass breaking around 3 p.m. Another neighbor heard a dog barking around that time, too. Even more, a neighbor from across the street saw a man either in a hoodie or wearing a cap loitering around the Lynn's home. This person then made their way down the Lynn's side yard. All of this took place as Jennifer would have been arriving home from school. That complicated the timeline because if the murderer broke in at three, investigators had to answer the question of why didn't the attack take place until after she was off the phone with her friend 
at 5.20, over two hours later. The answer came from the following theory. Investigators were theorizing that the attacker had broken in around three, but laid in wait. They backed up this theory with a couple of things. One, it appeared that whoever did this cleaned up as much of the broken glass as possible. Ginny's piano was only a few feet from the window that was broken. But again, the glass was cleaned up and the window had a decorative curtain hung with two spring-loaded rods at the top and bottom. Another piece of floral fabric was wrapped around the middle, cinching the curtain in. All the murderer had to do was break the glass, put their arm through the broken glass, unlock, open the window, and climb in. Once inside, they closed the window and readjusted the curtain to cover the break. It appeared to investigators that that middle piece of floral fabric, the belt, if you will, was even adjusted a bit to widen the curtain in a certain area and conceal the break even more. I know that that was probably long-winded, but I really wanted to make sure that I described this window and its curtain to you. I will also include a picture of the window in our Instagram post, so make sure you follow us there. All that to say, Jenny most likely never noticed anybody had broken that window, nonetheless was in the home with her. The other thing that investigators were backing their theory up with was that they believed that this attacker, one that was there solely for the purpose to harm, got a thrill out of laying in wait, knowing the sick, sadistic things they were about to do. Assistant Sheriff Nice says that the murder was sexually motivated despite there not being evidence of a sexual assault. We've heard this before in previous cases we've covered. It doesn't always take evidence of a sexual assault at the scene to theorize if a murder was sexually motivated. In this case, the murderer bound Jenny's knees and ankles, as well as her hands behind her back using a large amount of duct tape, way more than needed. This told investigators that there was, quote, an aspect of controlling her during the attack. Assistant Sheriff Nice again states that, quote, a behaviorist will say that this was fantasized behavior. Also of note, it was believed that the perpetrator was wearing gloves. I mentioned earlier that the entry point, which we now know was the window, and duct tape were dusted for fingerprints. All that came back was one partial print. This blew everyone away because, I mean, there were yards and yards of duct tape that was dusted for prints. Because of that, Investigators were more anxious than ever to get results back from a microscopic analysis of Jenny's clothes and hope that maybe they could find some kind of fiber or hair that the murderer left behind. And while they waited for that, the autopsy came back with more definitive answers than the print dusting. The autopsy results came back and confirmed that Jenny was murdered. The cause? Stab wounds with a knife that was double-bladed. Other evidence that investigators were able to find more tangible clues from or those boot prints I mentioned earlier from the Lynn's backyard. It was concluded that these prints came from a type of boot called a gorilla boot. These are commonly used in the construction profession. This neighborhood was brand new still. I think it was only about a few years old. That being said, it was still being built up. So this was an important finding. On top of the construction work being done in the neighborhood, the Lynn's home particularly would have been easy to stock and the stalker remain undetected since their yard was backing up to that hilly, canyony area that I talked about earlier. This made sense to the investigators' theory because they were sure the murderer knew when Jenny would be home and that she would be home alone for a while. As if he'd been watching the Lynn's home and the comings and goings within for a long time. 
the FBI joins the case and the profiler, Dr. Ellen O'Toole, echoes that this murderer spent a lot of time planning and watching the Lynn's comings and goings. She also says that the murderer very clearly knew the layout of the home. Perhaps they had been inside it before or knew the layout from some other way. In an additional claim, the profiler states that the crime was done in a way that increased the chances he'd get caught in the act. Example one, he broke in in broad daylight. This high-risk addition to the crime indicates that, yet again, the murderer was seeking a thrill. Dr. O'Toole echoes that the excessive use of duct tape also points towards this thrill-seeking behavior. The lack of prints and likely use of gloves indicated that the killer was, quote, practiced to Dr. O'Toole. At this point, it was not off the table or even far-fetched to say that this was done by a serial killer. Dr. O'Toole advised investigators to look into people in the area that are known peeping toms and stalkers within the area because, quote, many crimes came together to allow this to happen. We all know that just because you're a peeping tom doesn't mean you're a murderer, but we also know in the true crime world that these types of crimes can often escalate into, for example, murder. This advice from Dr. O'Toole turned investigators towards a neighbor that had some evasive answers when initially canvassed. He told them that he was working, which they found wasn't true, and then changed his story to say that he was at a friend's house. This also wasn't true. These alibis were verifiable, but he was still lying. What piqued investigators' interest even more was that this guy's family had a surgical instrument sharpening business. This gave him easy access to double-bladed knife-like instruments, which we know a double-bladed knife was used in Jenny's murder. The whereabouts of this neighbor could not be spoken for, but it is believed that he was alone on that Friday of Jenny's murder. He eventually stopped talking to police and his lawyer called investigators saying that he was no longer going to cooperate, which terminated the agreed upon plan that he would take a polygraph exam. Unfortunately, that's where it ends with this guy. There wasn't any physical evidence that linked him to the Lynn's home and investigators had no choice but to move on. Another neighbor was also of interest to investigators. This neighbor had been going around impersonating a police officer. They got a search warrant and they found a gun, handcuffs, and a roll of duct tape in his car. This guy also could have easily from his home walked along the fence line and into the Lynn's backyard undetected. He also had kids similar of age with Jenny and would have known the school schedule. The duct tape was sent for analysis and it came back as not a match. Just like with the previous neighbor, he couldn't be linked physically to the crime scene, so the lead didn't go anywhere. Investigators, refusing to give up, continued to follow Dr. O'Toole's advice and looked into other suspects in the area who had a criminal past. They checked into so many people. They looked into sex offenders and people who had recently been released from prison, but they weren't able to connect any of these possible suspects to Jenny's murder. The case started to feel like it might be turning cold. But finally, in August of 1994, a new lead came in. A man named Sebastian Shaw had been arrested after being found asleep in a stolen vehicle in Portland, Oregon. You may be wondering, how could someone 640 miles over a thousand kilometers away who stole a car have anything to do with Jenny's murder? Like, why was this the lead investigators were interested in? Well, the vehicle that he was in just so happened to have been stolen from about 12 miles away from the Lynn's home. If that wasn't enough, you won't believe what was found in the car. Detective Godlewski says that they, quote, found items you would expect on a sexual predator or serial killer. Those items that they found, duct tape, flex ties, 
latex gloves, and porn. Beyond that, they found items that fit Jenny's murder more specifically. A double-edged knife, just like the Emmy concluded was used to kill Jenny, complete with its sheath, as well as a sock with something weighted in it that could have been used to break the lens window. What really raised the hair on the back of investigators' neck, though, was that there was a musical instrument that they found in the car. It was a flutophone, a.k.a. recorder. These are cheaper instruments that are commonly used in elementary and middle schools for on-campus music programs all the time. I know a lot of you listeners might have kids that have one or used one yourself in elementary school or middle school. All of these items from the car were poured over. Investigators exhausted themselves trying to connect these to Jenny's murder. Unfortunately, nothing ended up being able to be physically linked to Jenny or her murder, the flutophone included. Sebastian was ruled out. That is until he landed back on investigators' radar. After years of being off the suspect list for Jenny's murder, Sebastian was arrested in Portland on February 20th, 1998. He ended up being charged with the 1992 murders of Donna Ferguson and Todd Rudiger. On top of that, he was charged with an attempted murder and sexual assault from 1995. It's actually DNA and assistance from the brave victim of the 1995 assault that led investigators to match the DNA to the murders of 29-year-old Todd Rudiger and his 18-year-old girlfriend, Donna Ferguson. They were living together in Portland. Their parents had become concerned after not hearing from them for a while, and both of their fathers went to the home and found them deceased. Donna, with her hands bound behind her back, and having endured a sexual assault. The MO of these murders was very similar to what happened in Jenny's murder, from Donna being bound and also more that is involved in this case. And it really struck police. He had forced his way into a home. He had bound the victims and stabbed them and cut their throats. Again, a lot like what Jenny endured. Of course, investigators wanted to make sure that they spoke with Sebastian, and Detective Godlewski, who was one of the first officers to respond to the scene of Jenny's murder in 1994, now four years later, a detective spoke with Sebastian. Sebastian ended up claiming to have killed 10 people, and he was ready to confess, but there was one caveat. He wanted the death penalty off the table. Investigators say, okay, but will you provide DNA then? The answer was a resounding no, unless the death penalty was off the table. The lens ultimately supported the death penalty being taken off the table if he confessed to murdering Jenny. Investigators knew that this was the best option because with the lack of physical evidence tying him to Jenny's murder, they didn't have a strong enough case. In a disappointing turn of events, Sebastian's attorney contacted police and basically said that Sebastian would no longer be cooperating with them. The plea deal nor a confession of any sort ever happened. The Lynn family and investigators didn't give up, though. They decided the next best approach was to have Mr. Lynn reach out to Sebastian himself through a letter. And in 2008, he wrote three letters in total to Sebastian. Here's one of them. It's with great pain that I write this letter to you. I am the father of the slain victim, Jennifer Lynn, who was murdered in my own home in Castro Valley, California on May 27, 1994. And finally, the detectives have identified you as the prime suspect of the murder. For the past 14 years or more than 5,000 days, I woke up every morning and the first picture came to mind was my daughter's brutal death. 
I have so many things I wish to say to you. However, nothing will bring my daughter back. I am hoping that you have a conscience to know the pain that my family has suffered and will suffer for the rest of our lives. Fourteen years ago, you took away our daughter, a piece of our family, a piece of our heart. I am asking you to please reach deep down in your heart and reach for your conscience. So, when you experience those moments of conscience, I want you to think back 14 years and answer the following questions. Why did you target my daughter? How did you get into my house? Why did you kill her? Even though you haven't admitted it, it's clear in my mind that you did it. So why can't you just admit it and be responsible for your own self? Did you ever feel sorry for killing my daughter? You have relatives yourself, and can you imagine the impact of losing your relatives to violent crimes? The response that John got wasn't exactly what investigators and John had expected. Instead of providing answers, Sebastian questioned that this was really John Lynn who had written to him. Quote, I take your letter with a huge grain of salt. You may or may not be Jennifer's father. Who knows? He ultimately said in his letter that he would be willing to correspond, but he would like proof it's him and to meet in person. Now, instead of organizing John to go to Oregon and meet with Sebastian in person, law enforcement decided that they would help John record a video of himself saying that, yes, I'm Jenny's dad, and yes, it's me who wrote to you. They did that, and it was enough for Sebastian to feel comfortable that it was Jenny's dad writing to him. In response to the video, the lens received what was described as a multi-page denial. Quote, you're looking in the wrong place. It wasn't a confession like they had hoped, but it still made investigators look twice. According to Detective Godlowski, he knew that Jennifer had been sexually assaulted and that, quote, kind of floored us because that hadn't ever been revealed, end quote. Sebastian was questioned about how he knew that Jennifer had been sexually assaulted, and he claimed that the investigators told him. Finally, they get Sebastian to agree to a polygraph test, but because his request for control over the questions wasn't heeded, the polygraph exam never happened. It was another disappointment. Investigators spent, quote, a ton of time trying to connect Sebastian to Jenny's murder through witnesses and physical evidence. Unfortunately, that hasn't happened. More than that, Sebastian Shaw and any answers he may have had died with him in prison in early October 2021. He passed from undisclosed causes, but it was unlikely that it was COVID, according to the Oregon Live. He remains a suspect. Quote, I don't think at this point we can definitively rule him out. After 28 and a half years, Jenny's murder remains in active investigation. Detective Godlowski retired in 2012, and he states for Palazan that his biggest regret is that he didn't solve Jenny Lenz's murder. In June of 2022, it was released that new DNA technology was used to re-examine all of the evidence. It has given investigators new hope, new information, and new leads that Sheriff Ahern says that they are, quote, keeping close to our vests, an effort to not disclose too much to a potential suspect. There is no doubt that the lens deserve justice. John and Melian continue to stay positive as they await justice to be served. Here they are for CBS's Bay Area affiliate. We remain very hopeful that uh, the case will be solved. Closure doesn't mean the end of uh, pain, the end of sadness. That would stay with us all the way. But at least it's an answer that we've been looking for. 
In her memory, the Jenny Lynn Foundation was incorporated around 94 or 95. Its mission is to, quote, promote child safety and youth music education. The foundation sponsors many music and safety events, which benefit the East Bay communities. This includes a free youth music camp, a concert, scholarships for young musicians, safety awareness education, and more. To volunteer or donate, head to JennyLynnFoundation.org. Jenny's friend Hannah reminds us, quote, her impact in those 14 years is probably greater than many of us would hope in a lifetime. In a heart-wrenching interview for Paula Zahn, John speaks about the possibility of him passing without his daughter's murder being solved. Quote, if I couldn't find the killer for her when I face her one day, I don't know what I'm going to say to her. So John, if you're listening, we feel so deeply for you. And when we hear those words on Paula Zahn, it breaks our heart. Please know Jenny knows how hard you and the investigators are working. The Jenny Lynn Foundation is offering a $200,000 reward if you have any information about the murder of Jennifer Lynn on May 27th, 1994, contact the Alameda County Sheriff's Office, 510-667-3636, or call the Jenny Lynn hotline at 855-4-JENNY-LYNN. Until next time, be sure to follow us on our socials at The Murder Diaries Pod and check out our Patreon for more Murder Diaries content. And don't forget, stay safe. Bye. Get more from your store with Safeway's Fresh Pass program and enjoy more services like unlimited free delivery and all your grocery needs. More exclusive perks like 5% off every day on your favorite organic or open nature items across the stores and more rewards that never expire. Get Safeway's Fresh Pass to enjoy exclusive perks, unlimited free delivery, and more. You can start your 30-day free trial today. Visit Safeway.com slash Fresh Pass for program details. Service available in select areas. Safeway.com slash Fresh Pass. Is your daily grind getting you down? A Thermospas hot tub may be the solution. Just a few minutes under those powerful, soothing jets, and all your stress seems to melt away, like you're lying on a cloud of bubbles. You'll not only feel better, but sleep better, too. Call 877-861-4672 now, and for a limited time, save $1,250. Call 877-861-4672 or visit thermospas.com to schedule a free on-site assessment. Seeking the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the roaring 20s. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device or play on PC through Facebook games.